Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? What if I told you that 1776 was the most pivotal year in human history? Well, maybe not human history, but the last 1,000 years. Your ears might perk up. You might think I'm about to put America at the center of everything, but that's not what I want to do. Instead, I want to introduce you to Andrew Wilson, a man who's made exactly that claim and done it in a way that you might be surprised by. Andrew's a teaching pastor at King's College Church in London. He has degrees in history and theology from Cambridge, where he got his master's in King's College London, where he got his PhD. He's a columnist for Christianity Today, has written many award-winning books, including The God of All Things and the book that we are discussing today, 1776. Let's hop in. Andrew Wilson, it is fantastic to have you with us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this conversation. I have the feeling that your book, 1776, may end up in at least my top five, maybe my number one book of this year. And I really say that not just to butter you up for a great interview, but also <laughs> because I really beat it. But before we talk about the content of 1776, I want to ask you a question that I think many Christians ask when they are thinking about reading a book like this, which is why should I care? Why should I care about history? I mean, it's really interesting to know about my ancestors, my great, great, great grandparents, but what's the functional use in my life? Why should I care about and attend to history? I think because if you don't, you are like someone who is arriving halfway through a conversation that's been going on for an hour and you've missed most of it. And then you listen for about 10 minutes and then you start chipping in. And obviously one of the options is you don't say anything. You simply just listen in silence and gradually observe the world around you for enough years that you feel like you've got something to say. But the alternative and what many of us do is if we don't have an accurate read of history is we start chipping in without really any understanding of what's gone before. And you can see the relevance of that in a lot of contemporary debates about really important issues. So if you want to have anything to say about the difference between different kind of church denominations, or if you want to have anything to say about race relations, or if you want to have anything to say about the rights of people who would call themselves sexual minorities or how the law should evolve, or even how men and women should interact with one another in a marriage or in a church or in a workplace. In each of those cases, there is a story that has been told over the last 50, 70, 100, 1,000 years. And without knowing what that story is, you'll end up making a less significant contribution. And of course, the problem is, if we don't know history, it's not that we just have a gap in our knowledge. What happens is we don't realize that gap is there. We just tell the story fairly confidently without knowing that it's wrong. And so because we're storytelling creatures, we all have some sort of functioning narrative to how the world got to be where it is. If you've ever used a term like the Dark Ages, which I obviously take a shot at in the book at some length, you are operating within a kind of historical narrative that's assuming certain things about what the world used to be like. And the question is not, do you have a history narrative or not? The question is, is the narrative you're using valid or does it need to be refined in dialogue with sources from previous generations or even people today who tell the story of how we got here in a very different way? And so I think none of us can escape history. It's just a question of whether or not we're going to do it well or whether we're going to do it badly. 
It's a fantastic answer. It makes me think about, I was reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my daughter years ago, and I read in publication order, so we started there, and we finally got towards the end of the series where you get the prequel, The Magician's Nephew, and you find out how these children or their ancestors ended up in Narnia to begin with. And she was like, you know, I don't need to read any of this. I already know what happens with Aslan. I've seen how the story unfolds. None of this matters. And I said, no, understanding where they came from, understanding the history behind what happened is going to help you appreciate the story that you already love even more. And of course, that was absolutely the case. The problem is we're better at doing it with fiction than we are at doing it with our own history. Yeah, it's like the massive sort of, you know, all these superhero movies, backstories, origin stories, all that stuff come out. And people love that kind of thing. I think often if they don't think they like history, it's probably because they've been taught it in a way that was dull. That's probably all that's happened. And so I'm trying to help people see it in a way that's interesting. And that's <laughs> whether we've succeeded or not is for the reader to judge, I'm sure. Well, that was one thing I appreciated about your book. It was not dull. You have a fantastic sense of humor and you have a great way of drawing people into the story and the narrative oh, uh, of our own history. In the book, though, right at the very beginning in the introduction, you make a incredibly bold claim. And it's this quote that 1776, more than any other year in the last millennium, is the year that made us who we are. Now, at first glance, when I read that, I thought, oh, no, you know, he's about to make a case that America is the center of world history. But if you finish the book, you'll find out that you're doing something much more complex and interesting. So let's start here. You say that 1776 made us who we are. Who exactly are we? I adapt an acronym from some psychologists, particularly a man called Joseph Henrik, who's a, a Harvard psychologist. I adapt an acronym from him. He uses the acronym WEIRD. He says that we are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And I add to that, we are also ex-Christian and romantic, to make the word weirder. And I say, that's really what I mean by we. Clearly, there are people who could read this book. And I've, in fact, already given the book to two friends who live in Mumbai. And one of them's already reading it and was excited to read it. But I thought, yeah, this is the we in the book is not primarily him. It's primarily people like you and me and many, many others who live in, there might be up to a billion people who live in what we would think of as the modern West. But the West is not just a geographical can see it does reflect certain attitudes to education, industrialization, wealth, public policy and government. And particularly something that comes through a lot in the way I'm telling the story is our sort of the twin influences of romanticism and Christianity as forming, you know, the sort of two mingling, two oceans which mingle and create a lot of life, but also create a lot of instability. And that that's who we are. And there's plenty of people who might read it from a very different perspective and go, yeah, that is what's weird about the West. But my guess is that the vast majority of people who read it will be reading it as it's describing them. And that's the hope. So that's who I mean by we. Yeah, it's a helpful acronym because it's obviously a double entendre. We take everything you just said in the West for granted. This is just the way things are. And the reality is that throughout human history and even in the world today, it's weird. The way we think, the way we live, our culture is strange. It's weirder in human history. Could you give us just a quick crash course on each one of those little items and what you mean by Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, ex-Christian, and romantic? Yeah. So Western is the strangest one, because if you look at a globe, you would never say that all the Western <laughs> nations are in the West. Like you'd say, how is Australia part of the same bit of the world as Canada? And, you know, it, it just seems very incoherent. But I think Western, as I use it, means the nations that were part of Western Christendom or were colonized by parts of Western Christendom to such a degree that their demography and institutions reflect European nations. So basically, the West starts somewhere in Latin Europe, so the sort of Latin-speaking Europe in the Middle Ages, and then all the nations that are effectively now been colonized by and had their institutions profound and economies profoundly shaped by it. I think you then have some nations which were sort of Western to a greater or lesser degree, because obviously, in some ways, I'm describing Colombia as much as I'm describing France. And you would say France is a more classically Western nation than Colombia. But I think as a broad overview, that's what I mean by Western. Educated, I mean, not just that you have been 
educated at all. Of course, everybody educates their children in certain ways. But I think in the West, there is an expectation that education will often not only be useful for the job you're going to do, but that there is a value to learning extraneous information and having a value on education and even that education is a marker of status and that in many ways someone say who is tenure professor at harvard might earn less than someone who did a much less glamorous job but but their money wouldn't attribute the status their education would confer a lot of prestige and that that's the way our world works is we value education in a particular way and we think that you and i should learn trivial things just for fun which is what this conversation is <laughs> and that's not how many nations in history would have thought industrialized i think is more self-evident you know we are profoundly shaped by the industrial revolution and industrial technology we don't live on the land we work in offices or factories rich Again, we are this side of the enormous hockey stick jump in wealth that kicked in really from the late 18th century. And so we have dramatically more wealth, goods, services, life expectancy, well-being in terms of measured in physical ways. We're much less likely to die in childbirth or much less likely to live in agonizing pain than people before because we are wealthy. Democratic, again, fairly self-explanatory, but our government assumes that it's based on the consent of the people and different nations have different ways of measuring what the people think about things, but that's the expectation. Ex-Christian means that we have inherited a Christian legacy of morality and values which run very deep, even though culture as a whole is trying to leave them behind. We're still profoundly shaped by Christian categories. And then romantic means that we have been marinated in the art and vision of the self and the soul and what art and music and poetry and emotions mean and that our current framework, even if we don't think that we are romantic in the sort of, oh, I'm in love kind of way, that that's not really what we mean. I mean, we have been profoundly shaped in our understanding of those things by romanticism, which is a sort of very late 18th, early 19th century artistic movement in Europe and particularly Germany and then France, which has profoundly shaped us all. In that same quote at the beginning of the book, you say that we are post-Christian. You talk about the post-Christian West. What do you mean by post-Christian? This has been an interesting debate for me to reflect on. I know your friends, or I believe your friends, with Glenn Scrivener, who we had on the show earlier. And in his book, The Air We Breathe, he argues that our culture is oxygenated by Christian ideas, ethics, and frameworks. And the problem is that the Christian virtues have not just run amok, they've become a disordered jumble in our current order. And after reading it, I actually found myself thinking, well, perhaps we're not as post-Christian as I once thought we were. What do you think? I mean, what do you mean when you say post-Christian? How do we think about our culture being a post-Christian culture, even if many of our values and frameworks are rooted or grounded upon Christianity itself? Yeah, so Glenn and I have actually done a podcast called Post-Christianity, in which we explored this for eight episodes, and actually episode three came out yesterday, Okay, where we discussed this exact issue, which is you know, he's written a book which is saying, look how Christian we are. I've written a book which is talking about how we became post-Christian and we wanted to talk about to what extent are there tensions between those positions. And I think the way I frame it in one of the sections of the book, which is probably my best analogy for it, is that what I mean by post-Christianity is the same as what people mean when they talk about parts of cities being post-industrial. That So I was in New York six months ago and there are almost like post-industrial sections, like the sort of, I think it's called the High Line or the Skyline. It's like a, a walk raised up above an old disused railway where you can walk through and they've turned it into an urban garden and it's very bohemian and cool and you can experience the benefits of living on the far side of the Industrial Revolution compared to which you don't want to live in the New York of Gangs of New York, for instance. You don't want to be an industrialized in New York. You want to live in ultra-gentrified, bourgeois, you know, post-industrial in New York. And what you mean by that is not that industrial technology is gone. What you mean is it's so secured that we can move beyond it and now we can go vegan because we're not worried about running out of calories. We can get wood-burning stoves instead of central heating because we're not worried about getting too cold because ultimately we know there's enough to go around. We can turn factories into flats and make them look really, or apartments you'd call them, and make them look really cool and contemporary because we don't need as many factories. But that's not because you've ditched industrialization. It's actually because industrialization's so baked in, you can now afford to go beyond it and be secure that you're not going to lose the benefits of it. And it's in that sense that we're post-Christian, I think. 
that it doesn't mean, oh, no, no one believes any Christian truths anymore. It's that the Christian moral transformation has been embedded so deeply in the West, at least for now, that people feel I can go beyond it. I don't have to hold to Christian metaphysics, as in I don't have to believe in God or Jesus risen from the dead and crucified for the sins of the world in order to also believe that all human beings are dignified and made in the equivalent of the image of God and entitled to certain rights and that you should be compassionate to the weak. I don't have to believe that. But, but I don't have to believe Christianity in order to believe those things because in the end, everyone assumes those things. And that's because we are post-Christian. We have baked it in so thoroughly that we don't even notice that those things are Christian convictions anymore. But we can afford to do that because we're not worried that we're going to somehow end up back in Roman morality or the morality of Game of Thrones or the morality of, you know, whatever other kind of non-Christian system we might get to mention. So that's what I mean by it. it's analogous to the way we've gone post-industrial, I think. Any analysis of the history of the West since 1776, or really even, you know, since the Renaissance, is always going to beg a question, which is why is the West or why has the West become so much more wealthy and powerful than other parts of the world? You have some that trend towards outright racism. There's just something innate in European blood that creates such things. And you have other answers that go the opposite direction towards anti-Western animus. And so I'm curious, how would you answer that question? You, you have a whole chapter on it, but why has the West prospered in certain ways that other parts of the world have not. Right. So <laughs> if you're watching this rather than listening to it, you'll be able to see an enormous number of books on that exact subject right here. <laughs> it's like almost all of these books in some way about that question and related ones. It's a fascinating one. I think that if you read widely on the issue, there's about 30 different explanations people give, but I think you can group them into four buckets, which is what I do. And I said, one group of answers to that question are around institutions that basically say Western nations have institutions that make it easier to pursue wealth, or at least they have in the last few hundred years, which to do with, you know, rule of law and norms of government and economics and banking and practices, trade, which make those things easier. And it's really our institutions have enabled wealth. A second category is because of what I use the acronym GREED, guns, resource extraction, enslavement, death. This is the much more negative narrative, which has also got a lot of truth to it, which is Western people stole it. Western people stole people's countries. They stole physical people by their millions, and they made them work for them. They used that money to buy more weapons, which they then used to oppress more people and steal more land. And were it not for that process, the Western world would not have developed the wealth it did. And the third kind of explanation is to do with culture, that Western people, for various reasons, a lot of which is to do with Christianity, in the sort of 17th and 18th centuries became a lot more curious and pursued novelty and experimentation and new ideas more than most cultures in history before or since have. What generally cultures do is they value ancestral tried and tested wisdom more than newfangled ideas. The West is unusual because the West began to, and it hasn't always been true, but began in the period since the Reformation to start going, I think this new idea might be better than that old idea. And that in the end generates wealth. So that's the third kind of explanation. And then the fourth is geography, which is it is really to do with maps. It's to do with the fact that Europe in particular is united culturally in some ways because it has a, a shared language of Latin and shared Christianity, but it is divided into lots of small kingdoms that spend a lot of the last thousand years fighting one another and squabbling about things. And therefore, there's a competitive dynamic at work within Europe, which means that if Christopher Columbus goes to the Spanish and says, hey, I want to go and see if there's anything over there, and the Spanish say, don't be stupid, he goes to the Genoese and they say, okay, we'll sponsor that, see what happens. It's the other way around, of course, he's Genoese and he goes to the Spanish. <laughs> but that idea, and that happens many, many times over. I've got this idea, and then the French say, no, we're not having that idea in Paris. You become an exile, you go and write it in Holland, and then the Dutch break through in knowledge and so on, and then the British see it, and then they rival, and that, that dynamics at work. And I think basically all four of those stories that this is about institutions, it's about greed and theft and enslavement, it's about culture and it's about geography. I've all got a lot of truth to them. And I think it's actually the interplay between the four that answers the question. Mm. So now that we know who we are, we're weirder and we're post-Christian, and we have some idea of why we became what we became, I think we can go back to that original statement that you made, which is that 1776, more than 
any year in the last millennium is the year that made us who we are. Can you give us some concrete examples? Obviously, you've got a whole book on it, so you can't do every single one, but can you give us maybe some of your favorite examples of how 1776 made us into a weirder post-Christian culture? Yeah, sure. So in March 1776, on March 8th and 9th, that weekend, you have James Watt's steam engine starts running on the 8th. Adam Smith publishes The Wealth of Nations on the 9th. That's about three weeks after Edward Gibbon had published The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And obviously, Americans will be familiar with what's going on in America at the time. And it's then about three months after that that the Declaration of Independence is ratified. And as you go on, you've also got, at the same kind of time, Goethe gathering with a whole load of proto-romantic writers in Germany in the town of Weimar. You have Jean-Jacques Rousseau writing his Reveries of a Solitary Walker in Paris. You have Benjamin Franklin editing the Declaration of Independence to say it's not that these truths are sacred and undeniable, which is what Jefferson originally wrote, but they're, they're self-evident. And then various, uh, David Hume writes his dialogues concerning natural religion, which is a great sort of tirade against Christianity, but a very educated one. And then he dies. Captain Cook in the summer sails off for the South Seas for the third and last, as it will turn out, of his voyages, which has huge implications for the landscape of the Pacific and New Zealand and Australia and so on. And there's many, many others, but these are all happy. You've got the French Enlightenment kicking off, you know, it's sort of high noon of the Enlightenment in Paris, Denis Diderot, Voltaire, others. And so this is just an incredibly important period in the development of all seven of those developments I've talked about. We are Western and industrialized and democratic and so on in meaningful ways because of what happened in this one year. And so it's the fusion of all of them that makes the year so exciting, I think. I have to ask, at what point did you put together, wow, there was a tremendous amount happening in 1776? Because I think anyone, if they can remember back to their you know philosophy courses in college or history, you're clicking off a lot of things. Did someone give you the idea? You're pointing to a book. <laughs> well, it's just, I don't very often do this interview where I'm actually next to the book, but I was reading this book by Ian Morris. Okay. It's called Why the West Rules for Now. It's about six or seven years ago. I was on holiday in France and I was reading it and just really enjoying it. And it's basically a book about why the West took the lead developmentally and why it's now losing it and why the East is destined to take over again. I now can't put it back. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the book doesn't um, want to go back onto the shelf. And so I'm reading this book and he makes the comment I just made about James Watt's steam engine and the wealth of nations both being in the, the same year. And I thought, wow, and obviously the Declaration of Independence. I didn't know much about the American war at the time, but I knew enough to know it was in that year. And that was enough. Those three were enough to go, that's really interesting. I wonder if one day I might say, drop that into a sermon or look into it and learn <laughs> a bit more about it. And I started yeah. digging and then found how many other seminal events happened in the year. And meanwhile, I had also recently read Jonathan Haidt and then got into Joseph Henrich and the weirder, weird idea. And at some point, those two ideas collided. And I thought, oh, maybe I could use this year and that acronym to explain the modern West. That's sort of how it originated. It, the actual idea itself, I ne you never know where ideas come from, do you? They happen to you. I don't really know. But that was where it germinated, I think. Yeah, those are fantastic historical examples. You know, the steam engine and industrialization, Adam Smith and the wealth of nations and the kind of foundational document of capitalism. And I mean, you've given so many different examples. And I wish we had the time to go through every single one. But I want to focus on D, democratic, <laughs> just for a moment to, to give people a little illustration of... Not not only what they'll find in the book, but of how powerful some of these ideas are. One defining feature of Western culture today is certainly the fact that we expect democracy. Uh, in the book, you note that all but six countries on earth claim to be democratic, but in 1775, there wasn't one. So you explore in the book America's unlikely victory in the Revolutionary War, and I wish we had time to get into that. But I want to instead discuss a more challenging question. Why did America become and remain a democracy? Because again, there were no other democracies at the time, and it was certainly not a given that America would both become and remain one. So the question to me is not even so much, why did America become a democracy in the sense that the government was based on consent, they got rid of the monarchy, and they got some people, and obviously it was a small group initially, but has gradually expanded. They got some people to vote. That to me is not 
out of the blue in many ways at the time that the period it's in. Over the next 50 years, you'll see that kind of thing happening in a lot of different places. And even beforehand, obviously, you know, the glorious revolution, which sets the tone for a lot of what's done in the American Revolution in my country, was 1688, 1689, the Bill of Rights first. So this goes back along when it goes back before that, actually back to Magna Carta in some ways. No, the king cannot do whatever they want. They have to get consent. So the surprise to me isn't why did they decide that consent was important and that they didn't need a king, they needed people to... The English Civil War had done that. The surprise really is that in America, that experiment doesn't blow up, that they don't end up tacking into one of the two ways which most other countries did. Most other countries either went the British route, which is you can have consent about certain things, but there's still a monarchy, still got a lot of power, and we are going to balance the power of the monarch with the power of parliament. That's one way of going. And then the other way of going is to do what the French did much more famously, which is they had massively high ideals. They said, we're going to make everybody's equal, liberté, égalité, fraternité. We're going to make everyone free, everyone's equal, everyone's a brother. And we're going to chop the king's head off and then going to quickly spiral into utter chaos. And in the end, the utter chaos can only be resolved by the rise of a strongman in Napoleon. So lots of countries had different ways of going, how do we give power to the people? So what America did was it somehow managed to combine the high ideals of the French Revolution, where everybody's equal, with the attention to institutional balance. And Thomas Jefferson and John Adams had different concerns, almost opposite concerns. Like Jefferson was concerned that the people were going to be disenfranchised and John Adams was concerned that the people were going to run amok, take over, the thing would disintegrate into chaos. And what happened is that the John Adams faction got the institutions they wanted and the Jefferson faction got the rhetoric and the ideals they wanted and the combination of those very nearly blew up the country in the 1790s, which if you've seen the second half of Hamilton... It's just dramatised really nicely, all the yelling in that, but it didn't blow up. They somehow managed to hold together just. I think George Washington's statesmanship and his transition of power is vital there. We've had interesting conversations about this. Some readings of history and some parts of my book make it sound like history is so inevitable based on maps that it doesn't leave room for individuals to make important choices. But I think the choice of George Washington and some of the decisions made by that small bunch of men have made an enormous difference to the way that countries today govern themselves because of the American example. So it's not just that America was democratic, it's that it didn't collapse under its own weight in the first generation. I think that's what's fascinating. And I think it's because of that unusual fusion of almost a French radical ideas about equality and a sort of British wiggery that said, no, you must have institutions that are very strong and stable, rah, rah, rah. And that combination is what America still built on and still argues about every four years to this day. Well, you know, that's what I was about to say. It goes back to your first point, which is we are entering into a long conversation. And anybody who's listened to this podcast knows that we talk a lot about political tribalism, but we sometimes forget that that tribalism has its roots all the way back to the founding of, of our nation, of America. Like you said, the French radicals who you know might be the forefathers of modern, more liberal, progressive. This is oversimplified history, but liberal, progressive thinking. And like you said, the more conservative, Whiggish folk like John Adams who are the forefathers, we might say, of a more conservative way of leading the world. Now, of course, that's an oversimplification, and there have been ways in which those have flip-flopped, but we see the same tensions present in our own day, and it's helpful to understand where they came from, and in some senses to appreciate how productive they've been for our social order, because without that tension, as you already pointed out, we would have ended up going one direction or the other. Yeah, I think that's really important. So the, this happens in several areas in the book. So the answer I gave to your question previously about economic growth is, I think the answer is found in the tension between the nobility of some of the Western ideals and Western curiosity and institutions being a good thing and the amount of factionalism and infighting and competition and wars between European states and the amount of expropriation and enslavement and things. And effectively, so is it a result of good or bad? The answer is both. I think you find the same with politics. I think you find the same with, you know, many developments that are significant, that the tension between them, even between Christianity and Romanticism. I give lots of examples in the book, but most interesting movies or books that you have read or seen probably have within them both a Christian thread and a romantic thread, the tension between which drives much of what makes the story interesting. And so I think there are lots of benefits to some of those tensions in all sorts of unexpected ways in the way Western culture works. And obviously, 
I wouldn't presume to comment too much into the political environment of your nation at the current moment, but I think we have to see that there are, by and large, benefits to the tensions that exist in pluralist democracies, rather than seeing them all as threat, because much of the stability we have, much of the health we have, much of the wealth and standard of living we have has been driven by those kinds of tensions in the past. Mm, yeah. Over the last five years, there have been a number of books discussing self-expressive individualism, which we talked about quite a bit on the podcast. So I'm, I'm not going to explain it too much here, but many of those books are drawing together the thinking of scholars from the last century, like Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre, Philip Reef. And your book is not exclusively about self-expressive individualism. It certainly plays a role inside the book, but it runs along some similar tracks as some of those previous books. The thing that I noticed, though, is that you do have some major divergences. For example, many of the books that I've read over the last, you know, five, six years have left the topic of race largely out of their picture. In 1776, you draw the history of race back into this discussion. So I don't know what your answer to this question is going to be, but I am curious. What do you think happens if we leave race out of our discussion on self-expressive individualism? Uh, <laughs> so I think it depends who we is, but I'm assuming that we is generally, you know, white middle-class college educated yes. guys who are often the people writing these books like me and probably like you. And I think that one of the obvious things that happens is that your narrative is nowhere near self-critical enough and that the cost paid by in your context, African-Americans in mind, by, to be honest, many nations, people all over the world, is written out of the story. And I think that can mean a number of things for the way you tell the origin story of who you are and where you got. It can basically, of those four narratives I gave earlier, you dial up the two good ones and dial down the two bad ones. That's one of the things that can happen. But I also think you don't really understand the importance of material factors in driving individualism and modern ideology. What you tend to do is to trace an entirely idea-based story. So-and-so said this, this philosopher said that, they did, Luther said this, then we wait a while and then you know, John Locke said this and then Rousseau said that and you just trace the story through like that. And that's an interesting story and it's worth doing. And actually, I think in many ways, that's what Carl Truman's book does really well. It's like, it, he says unapologetically, I'm an ideas man, that's what I like and that's the story I've chosen to tell. But I also think he and many others would say, but of course, that's not the only story to be told, that a lot of the other things that are going on are to do with economic systems and structures and inventions and technology, without which the way we currently practice modern individualism would not function the way that it does. And so if you take race out, you don't only tell a too positive a view of your own backstory. You also marginalize a lot of the way the story should be told about, you say the West is getting more and more individualistic. And you think, well, some parts of the West are uh, in very obvious ways, but are you going to apply that to Hispanic countries? Are you going to apply that to African-Americans? Are you going to apply that to, in my country, a lot of people from the Asian subcontinent who live, you know, would you say they're not Western because of that and so on? How? And so you end up with a slightly flat story. And I also think you underplay the importance of systemic structural, I know in certain circles, these are, you know, bogey words, but for me, they're very important. And even just material, technological, industrial factors in forming the way individuals work. So if I could just give one example, the car is an incredibly important driver of individualism. It's not an idea, but just by having been built and making it possible for me to go, I don't really like you very much, Patrick. So as a result, I'm going to go and join a community. I'm <laughs> going to get my shopping from, or I'm going to go to church with people in a town 10 miles away. I can do that now. I wouldn't have been able to do that in the 18th century. And that invention has made it possible for people to become more to use your word, tribal, more isolated from other people who are not like them. And that's, the car might be a morally neutral thing, but it has definitely contributed to the practice of expressive individualism, even though it's not an idea at all. So that would be one example of how I think we need a, a sort of thicker reading of the different forces at work in shaping who we are. And that was one of the things I appreciated most about your book. I'm an ideas man myself. And so this is actually a course correction for me. I often have to do is it's easy for me to understand or read into a intellectual history and leave behind the thicker telling, which includes material, systemic, cultural, social issues that have also shaped who we are. And it's one of the things I appreciated about the book. I'd love to change gears and discuss something I find most people wish I would not bring up, which is pacifism, or as I like to call it, Christian 
nonviolence. <laughs> now, you and I are both advocates of Christian nonviolence. We were at the Gospel Coalition Conference at the same time. I joked with a friend. I said, I think Andrew Wilson and I might be the only two advocates of Christian nonviolence here. That's probably not true. <laughs> but we are outnumbered, okay? Outgunned and outmanned, to quote Hamilton. Like I said, we're squarely probably outside of the mainstream of evangelicalism, at least here in the States. I realize that's not quite your context. But one chapter I would have loved to have read and that I would have found very interesting would be a chapter that's exploring how 1776 shaped Western conceptions of violence and warfare and self-defense. But before we get to that question, could you, you know, just in brief, maybe share a bit about how you came to your own convictions regarding Jesus's call for us to embrace nonviolence? Yeah, so I've got a very military family background, really. I had a grandfather who won the military cross. I had another grandfather who was imprisoned by the Japanese. My grandmother was at Bletchley Park with the Code Breakers. In fact, the previous generation, my great-grandfather sailed the first ever submarine fleet across the Atlantic in 1915, and they've got lots of medals at the Tower of London. All this. So that's my family history. So it's definitely not come from there. I think what happened was probably the first thing I read was Richard Hayes's Moral Vision of the New Testament, which I found very convincing when I first read it. And in fairness, when I first read it, I'd never studied the topic before. But he came to a, a very sort of classically Anabaptist-y, non-violence-y position. I wasn't persuaded by him on every issue, but on this one I was. And I started reading through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus's teachings generally and thought, I just, wow, this just seems like what you would call it a slam dunk or a home run or some <laughs> other sporting related metaphor. A touchdown. Uh, some, uh, <laughs> so I then thought, well, what are the responses? And this then got into, so how do people respond from a different tradition? And to be honest, found a bunch of the exegetical foundations for it very weak. Obviously, I'm preaching to the choir here with you, probably not to most listeners, but found myself thinking, well, hang on, this sort of, look, Lord, here are two swords business, or the fact that there's no explicit moment where Jesus tells a soldier to lay down their arms. I think nobody doesn't tell the, one of the sinful women doesn't tell her what she should do with her life. It just isn't, you can't argue like that. It's lots of ways in which Jesus, you don't get the whole story with what he says in the Gospels. And then I found Romans 13, and I thought, that's not convincing either, because Romans 12 is addressed to the church and is all about the way the church should function. Romans 13 is talking about the state and the way the state should function and seems quite explicitly to tell the state that it functions in a different way to the way the church does. So I just thought, wow, at a level of exegesis, I just can't see this as being very strong in New Testament terms, unless you are to say, no, the Old Testament war narratives are where we get it from. But that to me is undone by the fact that Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I said to you. So I think I got that. I was persuaded intellectually with exposition of the New Testament text, I think is what actually happened to me. Now, obviously, everyone claims that they got to their view because they read the Bible. But I think that's how it happened in my case. And then I did some back and forth on my blog about 10 or 12 years ago with a couple of friends who don't agree with me. And that helped me refine what I thought. I then found Preston's book, Fight, was a very helpful. That's the book I tend to give to people if they're going, how do you take this seriously? And then as things went on, I got into more of the thought experiments and the, well, what about the guy at the door with a gun? And what about the Nazis and all those sorts of ones, which, again, I feel like that kind of whataboutery doesn't in the end change the argument. It just means you have to be prepared to accept that it will cost you to hold this view. So that's, I think, the story in a nutshell. Is there anything you would add if someone said, okay, go ahead and give me your biblical case for nonviolence? You know, again, we don't have a whole podcast, but is there anything that you would add in beyond what you've already mentioned? Not really, no. Perhaps to say simply that the Sermon on the Mount, if you're looking for how Christians should think about ethics, then the Sermon on the Mount is where you'd start. You say, love God, love neighbor. And then you say, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a disciple? And you start there. And moving out from there, you'd go through the teachings of Jesus and you think, what do you conclude? That's the argument I'd want to make. I think I would then, people wanted to go in further. I'd say, look at the first 200 years of the church. Look at what people said about this question before the emperor converted to Christianity. But no, I don't think the argument is actually very complicated. I think what happens is, I found this in the debate I did with Bob, and Bob and I become good friends. But I thought, in many ways, the debate very quickly went to, but how could that possibly work in this real-world situation, rather than a debate about exegesis on particular passages, which wasn't really what we argued about. We mainly argued about, is this even tenable? You know, What does that mean to speak very contemporary? What does that mean for Israel and Hamas? And I think it's those questions that make people say, well, this can't be the right answer, can it? But I find myself going, wow, that's you can't argue like that as a Christian because you could make the same claim about our sexual morality or, or even the fact that we believe a dead man is now alive. 
Christians believe lots of things which require a bit of a, gosh, are you really going there? But I don't feel that sort of strike against it. So that would be my, my short version. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. You know that Keith and I both care deeply about the intersection of the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom, and culture and politics. What you might not realize is that we have a far deeper passion for God's word. Before we started Truth Over Tribe, we had a different podcast that we are still running called 10-Minute Bible Talks. And if you're trying to find a way to get consistent time with God throughout the week in his word, I want to encourage you to go check out that podcast, 10-Minute Bible Talks. We do little 10-minute podcast devotionals, chapter by chapter, through the Bible. And just like this podcast, I think you'll find it interesting and thought-provoking and challenging in all the right ways. But above all else, you'll find that you are pointed to Jesus, to love him more in your heart, to follow him with your hands in your life, and to see how the gospel of the kingdom truly transforms everything. So pause the episode and get onto your favorite podcast app and search for 10-minute Bible Talks and start that journey today. Keith, the co-host of this podcast, and I did a long three-part debate about just war and Christian nonviolence. If anybody wants to listen to that, we'll link to it in the show notes. We'll also link to your debate with Bob Thune about gun violence, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. But in that debate, you said something that struck me, and you were saying this at the end there, which is that there are plenty of parts of the Christian moral imagination that seem outright strange to the world. And when our debates around violence immediately move from exegesis, what does the text say, to the whataboutisms, it's hard not to root the debate in, well, it just feels strange. It feels strange if someone walks into a church with a gun, not to pull out your own gun and stop them on the spot. But how many other (laughs) aspects of other Christian moral life, our life together, seem incredibly strange? Well, it's hard to numerate them because there are plenty. I think that's a helpful challenge. I actually want to circle back to that towards the end here. But let me ask you another question. As an advocate of nonviolence, I always get asked two defeater questions, which are these, and I'm sure you've been asked them too. Would you defend your family from a home intruder by using deadly force? And number two, would you enlist to stop Hitler and liberate the concentration camps? Now, again, if anybody wants to hear that, they can go listen to those debates. And I'm not going to ask you those questions today, but I'm curious. What does the fact that we get asked those questions so frequently say about the Christian moral imagination in the West? Well, they, I think they reveal quite different things, actually. I think they're both, the thought experiments are on the face of it very similar. Would you use violence to achieve noble aim X or Y? But I think they reflect quite different undercurrents. So the, would you defend your family from deadly force? No one in Britain has guns, really. So that the form of the debate in Britain is different. But I presume you could have an axe murder at the door as well. But that is a private property. This is a defender home. This is your task and responsibilities. There's even the assumption, isn't there, that there is a nuclear family in a house which is owned by you and which someone else does not have the right to trespass on. So there's lots of assumptions there about the size of families and how insular they are and private property and ownership and those sorts of things which are embedded in that story. And that's defined. There's none the worse for that. But it is a lot that's being assumed there about why it would be better, to using the question deadly force in the question, it's better to kill than to be killed when it's your family. I think almost as if that must be the most emotive string to pull on, because if it's someone else's family, you wouldn't care, would you? So the, that assumption, even there, that, that that would be inconsistent, for instance, with... You know, who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? Anyone who follows me is, you know, there's an interesting, even what it shows about how we think about nuclear family and property. Now, obviously, I wouldn't want my children to be killed either, but I don't think you have to kill somebody in order to achieve that in most cases. And I have to accept that that might put them at more risk and put myself at more risk by not owning a gun, but that's how I would go at that one. Whereas the Hitler one is, of course, a much more, that's a national one. There are nations that are on the side of the angels and nations that are not. And I think the war against Hitler even for me as a pacifist, we'd still be one of the few. There are very, very clear goodies and baddies in this story, or at least there are very clear compromise goodies who've got some things right 
and something's wrong and absolute abhorrent evil. But of course, most wars are not like that, not just in the 20th century as a whole, but today. And it can very quickly move from there is an oppressor over there to, oh, we've now become the oppressor almost immediately, actually, as soon as the war starts. And so I think that thought experiment reveals to us that we want to cast ourselves, understandably, as on the side of the right and the other nation over there is on the side of the dark. And of course, that's the only way the thought experiment would work. But I think it reflects actually quite a different world of thought. So at a national level rather than a familial level. And so I think even then the assumptions, it must be better to kill than to be killed, to me feel quite different from you joyfully accepted the plundering of your possessions because you knew you had a better and lasting inheritance or text like that. Now, that's not to say anyone would be rejoicing about having their family killed. I don't really mean to be facile about it, but it's simply to say that the kinds of assumptions in the New Testament church world feel to me somewhat different from the assumptions behind those thought experiments. I want to circle back to the original question I wanted to ask. It is I think, undeniable that the post-Enlightenment West has been one of the most violent cultures in human history, at least by body count. You know, between World War One and World War Two alone, there have been about 100 million deaths just in those two wars. And now, again, I want to be clear, every culture is violent. So I'd be hard-pressed to say that violence in the West makes us weird. We can find plenty of examples outside of the West of similar atrocities. But is there anything unique about Western violence that is somehow rooted in our history? Is there any way in which 17th 76 shaped how we Westerners think about violence in the present. To be honest, it's not something I gave a lot of thought to in the writing of the book outside of the chapter on economic growth, which I've talked about before. I think effectively the possibilities of exploding wealth to me feel like the most important factor here. So when everyone in the world is living at four or five hundred dollars a year, kind of income level, so a dollar or two a day, which most people have for most of history, the possibilities of dramatically increasing the wealth of everybody in your nation or tribe by using violence against someone else's nation or tribe were limited. People still, of course, fought all kinds of wars and were very violent against one another. But the idea of almost baking violence into your economic system, which I think that's effectively what slavery is, right? It's a willingness to be prepared to use obscene violence against individuals and entire people groups because it makes people a lot of money. And of course, that, without saying therefore everything that comes from it, is completely tainted by this and therefore, you know, we should try and undo all of it. No, I think we're still going to keep anesthetics and we're going to keep engines and those sorts of things. But I think that it's undeniable, I think, that the economic system we have and many of the benefits of it came about in a way that involved an awful lot of institutionalized violence against people who didn't have the same weapons that Western people did. And therefore, you can't really tell the story of the modern West without at least admitting that that is a significant part of why. It's not the only reason. I don't go there at all and say this is simply about it because people have expropriated things from one another and stolen each other's lands and enslaved them and killed them for the whole of human history. I don't think Western people are uniquely guilty of that. But I do think you can't tell the story of how Western people became as rich and influential on world history as we have been in the last 250 years without being honest about its roots in institutionalized violence and enslavement. So I think that's probably the main connection I would want to make. It might be that the, you're seeing more that you want to press into, but that would be the first place I would go as I was reflecting. on. So the main chapter in the book that talks about violence at all is the chapter on economic growth, because that's the place where it seems to me it's most obvious. I talk about the war between America and Britain as well in the chapter on democracy, but both sides have got guns. The British are mostly have more of them and a much stronger navy. As I like to say to my American friends, America spent most of 1776 just running away, but it turns out at the very end, he managed to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and enlisted the French and as a result managed to win. But that isn't really because of one side being more violent than the other. Whereas I think with slavery and economic growth and colonialism, empire in India is a big part of why Britain got so rich. And so is the cotton plantations in the southern states in America. So I don't think you can separate the story of Western wealth from violence at all. And I don't think we should. Moving more to the present, amongst wealthy, developed countries like America. America is actually weird in at least one way. We're an outlier with regards to homicide rates and gun violence. We are the only developed nation with a homicide rate above 2.1 homicides per 100,000 people. America is actually at 6.8 homicides per 100,000. Gun violence accounts for about 80% of the homicides in the U.S., 
whereas it accounts for about 4% in England and Wales, 11% in Australia. We own about 120 firearms per 100 citizens, and that's the highest rate of gun ownership in the entire world. And second place, Yemen owns about half as many guns per person. And the only other developed nation that's even close to us is Canada with 34 guns per 100 citizens. I'm trying to reflect on history, and you're obviously a outsider to American culture in many ways. Is there something about the American experiment that explains why even America is so weird when it comes to violence amongst other weird nations like your own? I think a lot of it is the stereotypical answer, but I think it's a lot of truth to it, is the space. It's the frontier, it's wild animals. It's that effectively the settlement, and obviously it's baked into the story of American westward expansion and Native Americans, and the fact that the violence in settling the land that is now settled by Western people took place much closer to the present day in North America than it did in Europe. So, you know, to the extent that there is colonizers and natives in Britain, that battle's taking place in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. It's not taking place in the 19th century. And similarly, with mastery over nature, the natural world of bears or, or whatever it might be, that again, that's not really happening with wild animals in Britain in this period or even in most of Western Europe. Whereas in North America, the sense of needing to tame nature and the sense of being embattled with and trying to take land from people who live there who are not from your people is something that's happened much more recently. And so the, the legacy of violence is much closer chronologically. So people in Britain had a lot more guns in 1800 than they do now. But in most modern states, people have concluded we don't need as many guns because a lot of the things that we needed them for, whether it be slaughtering animals or it be keeping the land under control, defending against threats, are done through the institutions and organs of the state. And in America, for various ideological and material reasons, material reasons being space, ideological reasons being the emphasis on liberty and freedom at a personal level from government interference, America is just a very big country in which people are much less likely to say, no, it's all right, the state will look after me if I don't look after myself. And that's partly because of the ideas and it's partly because of the size of the land. I mean, I'm not an expert on this at all, but that would be how I would connect the dots between the late 18th century and the question you're asking. I think some of it's about land, some of it's about chronology, like how recently the people needed to be violent in order to secure their land or their possessions. The battle against the Native Americans, which obviously is another whole you know, cataclysm, which we don't have time to press into. And some of it is about the individual, you know, the live free or die thing, which we don't really have here in the same way. So, yeah, that would be a guess as to some of the factors at work that separate America from... And, of course, many of those would also apply to Canada. It's just that in Canada, almost all of the people live very near the American border. So much of the open space is not actually... Canada's more densely populated for much of it than America is, in a weird way, because everyone lives so near the border. So I'm not surprised. I didn't know that. It was also true in Australia, which is obviously another very big country, but then they took government action on this about 30 years ago, and it's made a dramatic difference, which... Is something, again, I chatted to Bob about in that debate. Yeah. And like I said, we'll link to the debate in our show notes. Part of me is just going back to where we started, which is we are entering into a conversation that's been happening for quite some time. And I think the average American is remarkably, myself very much so falling into this until recent times, unaware of the history of violence and armaments inside of our nation. And I think it's an interesting history to explore, to ask, am I receiving and taking things as givens, as norms that perhaps shouldn't be norms? Christians, at least in the States, don't seem to be much different from conservative non-Christians when it comes to the question of violent force and self-defense. In fact, of every religious demographic, evangelicals are the most likely to own guns, about 30 33% too. Close behind them are mainliners and white Catholics. Nuns, actually, so people with no religious preference, come in at about 17%. I don't have a statistic, but my guess is that the vast majority of evangelicals would support the use of deadly force in self-defense. And so it seems that we aren't very different when it comes to violence, when it comes to weaponry. And in fact, it sounds like we may actually be more weaponized than the average American. And so maybe you've got some sense of this looking from the outside, but do you think that there's a reason that that's the case? Or, or do you think it should be a cause for concern? I mean, should there be a call for evangelicals to pause and start thinking, is this the way it should be? Is this the kind of people Jesus has called us to be? Well, obviously, I would say that because I don't think it's right. I don't, <laughs> I'm don't. i not persuaded that it's a biblical position to hold. And as I said, I've had that debate 
publicly and privately with people. So obviously I'm going to say that. I think in some ways the question you're asking, though, raises the question, to what extent does the fact that we see this the same way as the culture around us, to what extent should that unsettle us? And of course, the problem with the question is that the same could be said of me, which is that in my country, people don't have guns and therefore Christians are not inclined to carry guns. And in Canada, maybe a smaller percentage do, but it's somewhere in between your nation and mine. And as a result, the church looks the same. I wouldn't be surprised if levels of gun ownership were as close between evangelicals and non-Christians in Britain as they are in America. It's just that the level was much lower. So to me, the sense you look like the culture around you, it's at risk of being a bit of a red herring because that doesn't tell me whether or not the thing I'm talking about is morally neutral. What it should do, however, is to make me think we are on almost all issues. We are bound to be likely to conform to the world around us unless we have very strong reasons not to. And the fact that Christians in most nations don't do this, and we do, should at least make us wonder why are they all wrong? Even those who are many of them, of course, not pacifists. They would just say, for pragmatic reasons, this is at risk of making more innocent people die. But so I think we've just got to be aware, haven't we, that all of us, you and me, as much as a gun-toting friend of mine, are at risk of thinking, because I am in a community of people who share these values, my values must be broadly correct. But I think that you can't establish the truth of your position on that on those grounds because that's like saying American evangelicals drive as many cars. Well, is that therefore immorally evil? Not necessarily. Might be, but probably not. And so I think in a way it's more just should raise our consciousness to the reality that when we're surrounded by people who do something, it becomes much harder for us to realise that it isn't what God wants us to do and therefore not to settle the debate with reference to the fact everyone around here does it. But in fairness to friends who defend gun ownership, I don't think most of them do that. So I think we need to establish the truth about other grounds. I agree. And like you said, in fairness, I think most people I know who own guns, which is quite a few people who own guns, they would say that, first of all, they're not owning those guns because they want to use deadly force. Second of all, they would say that if they were in a situation where they felt they had to do so, it would only be to protect their own life or to protect the life of others or the life of their neighbors. And so they would say, look, I'm trying to love my neighbor. I'm trying to protect their right to exist. And so it's easy to create a picture as though, you know, someone who owns a gun is a bad person with ill motives. And I just know too many people to know that that's simply not the case. I do find it alarming, though, because it's not merely that we reflect our culture. Evangelicals are the most armed group inside of our culture, more so than atheists, more so than people who have no religious affiliation. It seems strange to me. I think one of the things I've wrestled with in the midst of this, and this might be bizarre, and you can tell me, yeah, I, I think that makes sense or not, is we've talked a lot recently about self-expressive individualism and its impact on our sexual ethics, but I've begun to wonder if there's a similar conversation that needs to happen around our ethics of violence, that part of the reason why we are so pulled to the position opposite of Christian nonviolence is precisely because we feel this right to express ourselves and protect ourselves with violence. One stupid example of this, in the 2022 Oscars, Chris Rock, he made a joke about Will Smith's wife. It was not a very nice nice joke. And you might remember this, you might not, but Will Smith gets onto stage, walks up to him and smacks him across the face hard. I mean, really hard. It was, I mean, Chris Rock kind of halfway falls over. And I had a Christian friend who was watching it say that he loved what Will did. And his reason was that he doesn't want to live in a world where one man can make fun of another man's wife without paying. And this was his idea of what a good Christian nation would look like. Like we show each other respect and we show each other up when we don't. And so maybe this is my last question along the lines of Christian nonviolence. But what do you think a Christianized nation would look like with regards to violence? Well, again, I think because the position I hold is that Christians shouldn't use deadly violence. In fact, they shouldn't use violence, as I understand the meaning of that word at all. A Christianized nation would be a nation in which that was normalized. And I think that to me isn't a very difficult question. It's like, well, obviously this would be a nation in which people didn't use violence. I think in a sense, you'd go to, you know, swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And you'd say that is ultimately, that is what the world would be. There will not be violence in the new creation. And then I think the question is simply, are you bringing too much of your eschatology into the present by asking for that to be true now? And I think, well, yeah, on earth as in heaven, there's something we pray for. And maybe it's naive and maybe to expect the state to voluntarily get rid of its weapons, of course, is something that even I'm not in faith for that. But I think that's probably just to some degree a question of how much you expect a world of peace and justice to be inaugurated before the return of Christ. 
So to the extent that I think Christianized nations are a thing, and I think they aren't fully a thing until Jesus returns, they would be nations in which Christians don't use violence. And yeah, that would mean that some people who do use violence exercise a lot of unjust power. But that is exactly the position that the early church was in until the conversion of the emperor in the first 300 years. And it also saw exponential growth of the church and an enormous amount of care for the poor, enormous amount of justice pursued. So to me, that's more a question about the timing of the kingdom and your eschatology than it is really a question about what the Christian vision is for violence. I think that the same things would apply to what would a Christian nation of sexual morality look like? And so, yeah, it'd be one in which no one ever has sexual immorality, but practically that's unlikely to happen before the return of Christ. I'd say the same about nonviolence. So if you don't mind, to me, that question is almost a question about eschatology more than it is a question, I think, about guns or killing people or whatever it might be. Do you see what I mean? I do. I think that's helpful. And I think it's a helpful question for anyone to ask themselves just with regards to gun violence, whether or not you're an advocate of Christian nonviolence or you're an advocate of just war theory is simply the question, will I own this handgun? Will I own this automatic weapon in the new creation? And to what degree do I want to bring the future reality into my present? And to what degree is Jesus calling me to that? We all certainly know that there's aspects of this life, our lives here, that can't be in perfect alignment with what will be. But I think we're always challenged to at least ask. And I think that's a helpful way to frame this conversation around eschatology. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show with us today and letting me ask you my nonviolence questions. <laughs> You're very welcome. It's been great fun. I never get to speak to someone who actually agrees with me. So I have to take the opportunity <laughs> when I get it. If people want to continue following you or engaging with your work, where can they find it? So I'm on Twitter or X or whatever you call it, AJW Theology. <laughs> I do have a blog, which I've been posting on a bit more recently, thinktheology.co.uk. I have a column at Christianity Today, and I often write for the Gospel Coalition. And I'm the teaching pastor at King's Church London. So most of what I do is actually just local church preaching and other stuff like that. So kingschurchlondon.org. So there's a bunch of different places. But actually, the platform I'm most engaged in is Twitter. So that's probably the easiest place to find me. The best, worst place on earth. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, would you mind praying for us? Yeah, of course. Father, we do thank you so much for your purposes as they're worked out through history. And we thank you that you are the Lord of all. And we thank you that whatever our position on the American Revolution or guns or wealth or slavery or anything we've talked about in the course of this discussion, we do look forward to a day when swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and where the hills will flow with wine and where peace and justice and the increase of your government and peace will know no end. Lord, we look forward to that day. We ask you to hasten the day. We pray you'd help us live faithfully with the Lordship of Christ over everything we do and think and say between now and that day. And I pray for my brothers and sisters listening that whatever they're doing in their day, you would bless them, make them fruitful and strengthen them in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. 